Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Joining me on today's programme, however, on a cloudy and cool autumn day here in the capital is Julian Roberts. Julian is a director at Sheldon's Bar, a small cocktail bar based in Colwyn Bay, North Wales. Uh, Julian, very warm welcome to yourself today and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us. That's a pleasure, Scott. Nice talking to you. Likewise, Julian. Pleasure for us to welcome you onto the air alongside me as well. Um, COVID-19. Now, that, of course, is the dominant uh, headline of 2020, I think it is fair to say, and it's proven to be one of the most significant challenges for leaders within all walks of life. And, of course, the hospitality sector has been especially blighted by what's been going on over the last few months. So for yourselves working within that industry, to what extent has all of this changed things for you? Uh, it's, I would say it's turned literally everything on its head. Um, the whole industry has a completely different landscape uh, to how it did at the beginning of this year. Um, it's really hard to describe how different the whole industry is now. Um, just to sort of put it into perspective, we, uh, we've only been going just literally two years this month. It's our, our second year anniversary next week. So we're a very fresh business into this. Uh, and the first year of any business is always going to be difficult. So it was a hard first year for us. And then we started off into the second year very positively. So our first four months um, of our second full year were fantastic, best we'd ever had, and gave us a very rosy-looking future. Uh, and then all of a sudden, we hit, I think it was March the 23rd, um, and I can remember standing in the bar on that Friday night listening to the announcements uh, on the radio, uh, just with my head hung low, thinking this could be the end, uh, not only for us, but for so many other places. And just how, so, yeah, yeah, carry on, Julian, yeah. No, so it's, yeah, I mean, obviously we closed on that day uh, and we closed for, I think it was three months. Um, and then we had the glimmer of hope on the horizon from Rishi um, Sunak, which was the uh, Eat Out to Help Out scheme, which I have to say was a great success for us and was very much appreciated as well. Obviously, we were also supported by a government grant because of the uh, size of um, or the value of the leasehold and the property which again was also appreciated. And we did understand that sometimes hard um, decisions have to be made by governments and that's in the best interest of the, the whole population. But for businesses like us, it was a very tough time. So August was a lot better with the Eat Out to Help Out scheme. Um, and then we then hit the, uh, the 10 p.m. curfew. Uh, and that really was the, uh, that was the killer for the industry. Um, because anybody in the hospitality industry, particularly in, in, the, in the drinks trade, uh, knows that the money is made in a bar on a Friday or Saturday night. It's not the weeknights, it's the, it's the weekends when you're making money. And in particular, you make it between 10 o'clock and 12 o'clock on that Friday or Saturday night. Uh, so the 10 p.m. curfew not only cut that out, but it stopped people coming out, uh, and then it pushed people out onto the street rather than being in the safe confines of a, an establishment where somebody's put in protective measures to ensure that their clientele are very carefully looked after, are isolated from each other, everything is cleaned down so you're in a, an environment where you're actually being looked after, pushed out of that environment into an environment where you're all pushed together in the street and there's no real protection for you. So it's been a very, very 
unusual time, I think, in the hospitality trade. It certainly has, and there isn't necessarily going to be any magic bullet for this, is there, even when there is a vaccine that comes out? Of course, fingers crossed and God willing that does happen, because it's going to take some time, isn't it, for consumer confidence to come back and for people to sort of drum up the courage and get over their anxieties to come out into venues again with lots of people and be eating out and drinking out. Uh, I agree entirely, absolutely. I mean, even even if we do get to the point where we have a vaccine in place, if we've got all restrictions lifted and we're back to uh, an, a, a degree of normality, back particularly inside the hospitality trade, as you say, it's the confidence of consumers, um, which again is going to be the bit which is hit hardest, because mm. particularly for uh, an establishment like ours, our key uh, demographic is actually uh, probably 50 to 70 years old. It's not people in their early 20s and places like that. So the key demographic for us is one of the ones that's probably the most uh, scared of coming out and, and putting themselves at risk, even though a hospitality establishment is actually a very low-risk establishment. Mm. And even when, of course, um, the hospitality uh, venues like yourselves can start to return to their normal capacity again when it is safe to do so, some of the other measures mm. that we're seeing as well, just like maybe mask wearing, sanitizer stations being in place on premises, just because of our heightened awareness of personal hygiene and again our anxieties that's something that again could be here to stay for quite a while and could be in place for the long term now yeah i mean i am not i'm not worried about that in the slightest to be honest with you and i mm. actually think that's a very good thing so we have sanitizing stations all around the bar we have screens up inside the bar and i think that actually gives people confidence that again the establishment has, has gone to the efforts to try and ensure that their their, their clientele are kept safe because people are concerned about what's going on out there, rightly so. This is this is a, a disease that potentially could kill you. So you don't want to be going out in, a, in an evening and enjoying yourself and worrying and thinking, well, is this establishment actually looking after me whilst I'm trying to enjoy myself? You really have to have that confidence when you go in somewhere. Mm. So I'm not really concerned about, about the, the safety precautions still remaining in place. It's more around the restrictions that have been placed on hospitality uh, establishments at the moment, which are making it very difficult for places to actually keep their staff on um, and to pay the rent and to pay the, the lights and to pay for all the, the stock that they've got to have. It's, it's a very, very difficult and fine balancing act at the moment. And with regards to uh, staff members, um, how has it been sort of managing that during the course of the last few months? Because, of course, there will be the uh, the sort of necessary um, step um, being taken, presumably having to furlough one or two of them at the beginning, and then when you are able to reopen, it's then a delicate balancing act of managing their mental health, making sure they're confident enough to come into work. So um, how has that been sort of from your point of view in managing that side of things? Yeah, again, it's been it's been a very difficult process. Um, so we had to furlough all the staff, um, and that was owners of the business. We, and again, because we were a relatively new business, we weren't paying ourselves. So we were working for free. Uh, and unfortunately, we had other jobs to support ourselves. So we, when we furloughed everybody, we had no income coming out of that furlough arrangement. Although we still had to pay the rent, and we still had to pay the bills, we had to pay the electricity and so forth. So although we, we tried to look after our staff as best we could, it didn't take all of the cost out of the equation. So we did furlough all the staff. Unfortunately, when it got towards the end of furlough, uh, and we realised the restrictions that were going to be in place on us, it meant that realistically we couldn't take all staff back on. Mm. So we were about 50% of the staff that we had previously. So longer term, what we're hoping for is that with a vaccine in place next year, such would, uh, and with glimmers of hope on the horizon, what we'd like to do is just get ourselves back 
to the same position we were previously. So we're not looking to try and venture further than that. We're not looking to try and expand the business further than that. We want to get back to the standing point we were at the beginning of this year, which means we can employ more people, which is exactly what we need to do in this area, which is an area that relies on tourism and hospitality. And North Wales has been hit very, very hard by this whole thing because the whole area relies so heavily on the tourist industry. And hospitality relies on those tourists coming in, as the hotels, as to the seafood cafes, and the whole economy here really does rely on that. Um, and it has been hit hard. So the more people we can employ when we get up and running, the better, because that will help our local economy. And um, even though, of course, you're now in a position where that tourism has to return and you are going to have to claw that ground back, looking back over the uh, the last few months as you've sort of managed your way through the crisis to get to this point, is there anything you can say that you've learned from this as a positive lesson that you can sort of take forward and sort of help achieve those aims? That's a, that's a really good and a very difficult question to answer to Prime with because it's been such a firefighting exercise throughout the whole thing that it's been quite difficult to spend the time to try and use it as a learning exercise. Um, I think, I mean, it sounds like a bit of a cliche, but people are always the most important part of any business. And that was probably the saddest part for us, having to lose people and having to let people down. Um, and I think it was a lesson to us how important those people really are to the business. And particularly in hospitality, they tend to be the heart of it as well, because people come in and get to know those people. And when those people aren't there, the value goes out of the place sometimes and the heart goes out of it. So I think for us, it really did show us how important the people are more than anything else. And that's really all that matters in And of course, you've already mentioned that you're hoping to eventually get back to where you were pre-pandemic and be in a position to employ more people. Um, and if we think about the next sort of 12 months and how far you want to be along in that journey by then, where do you actually see the business being in a year's time? And what really are you hoping to have achieved by that point? Again, it's, it's a good question and it's, it's a difficult one to answer because it really does very much depend on, on what happens um, with the pandemic mm. and what happens with vaccines. There's so many, there's so many unknowns out there at the moment that for businesses like us, it's very difficult to really plan that far in advance. So again, we were, we were on the uptick at the beginning of this year quite nicely. So again, what we would like to do is by this, well, certainly by the spring next year, is be back in a position where we're trading fully. Uh, and there's a vaccine in place, and by this time next year, uh, be in a position where we have got the same number of staff back. We've pulled back the full number of staff. We're back to having nice full weekends and partially full weekdays, um, and we're just back to a position where we can enjoy it, and our clientele can enjoy it as well, and people can come out without worrying too much. Um, making a huge profit is the most important thing. Uh, enjoying doing the business, um, having people who've got secure employment and having happy customers is more important to us really than well. I can certainly understand where you're coming from from that point of view and you're absolutely right. It is difficult to sort of have a crystal ball and look that far ahead because the ability of business to plan far in advance and be proactive has been significantly hindered by the changing guidelines, changing circumstances. We're finding ourselves in a cycle of having to be reactive as opposed to uh, proactive. And we can only really look ahead days and weeks at best rather than months and years now. So it is going to be a challenging period. Um, You're absolutely right. And I certainly extend my very best wishes to yourself and Sheldon's Bar in trying to make some of those plans come to fruition over the, uh, the next year. And just given how 
enlightening it's been having you join us to share what's been going on behind the scenes at your business there julian i would really like and welcome the opportunity to welcome you back onto the show with us at some point in the next 12 months just to see how things are coming along and we can then reassess just how far the sector has come since then and what has changed God, I'd be absolutely delighted to do that and hopefully I'll have some very positive things to say when I do come back on. I'd certainly hope so. I do think uh, just seeing how things have changed in the meantime will be very intellectually valuable for our listeners tuning into this as well. And most importantly, Julian, and this also goes for everybody tuning in today as well, please do stay well and look after yourself and stay safe with everything that's still going on. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely right. And that's, that's the key to everything is, you know, health is the most important thing that we have in our lives. And, uh, you know, despite everything else, money's hard and all that a lot of us out there at the moment particularly for businesses but your health is the most important thing it certainly is julian thank you once again so much for your time to join us today absolute pleasure thank you it was a pleasure for me to welcome Julian Roberts, director at Sheldon's Bar in Colburn Bay, North Wales, onto today's programme. Um, next up on the show today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and incumbent Leaders Council Chairman, Lord Blunkett. That will be coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help, I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able Mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. 
what we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm -hmm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also I think in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the 
challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear right. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be 
considerably adjusted was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Donald Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real, on the back of that. It was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And, of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would. people criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy sh 
shut down. Um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely.
Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public, who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. And unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are uh, the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare. 
mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor uh, an electable government, and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and um, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition as well as a government that we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Sakir is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps 
to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learnt from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, Do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, thank you for coming on the the program. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blanket. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.